Lord, we just pray. We have gathered here in your name. We do this for you. And uh, we rejoice that in you we find that connection with each other that is so special and so permanent. We are part of an eternal family. And while we wait for your return, we just have these opportunities to find out more and more about you and to praise you and rejoice in you. We thank you that we can do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We began this series by looking at a quote from A.W. Tozer who said, It is impossible to have a healthy attitude about ourselves and other people if our concept of God is faulty. The problem is that the circumstances of life have a way of refracting and compressing that concept. And over a normal lifetime, our awareness of God's greatness will either expand 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, or it will decrease until, honey, I shrunk my faith. And it can happen to the best of us. In fact, it happened to a very godly king named Asa. We're in 2 Chronicles 14, where we'll play the game Mastermind. Verse 1 says, And Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Asa, his son, succeeded him as king, and in his days his country was at peace for ten years. Can you imagine that? Has the Middle East ever had ten successive years of peace? Verse 2 says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. No more pornography. Asa was an environmentalist because he knew that ideas are contagious. And if they're toxic, they can spread rapidly and contaminate an entire culture. Well, not on my watch. So Asa instituted a policy of theological hygiene. Verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. So in those days, God was relevant in Israel. So they didn't need to supplement their faith with idolatry. God was sufficient. Verse 5 says, he removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah and the kingdom was at peace under him. Forsaking all others, they wholeheartedly devoted themselves to the Lord. Verse 6 says, He built up the fortified cities of Judah, since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during the, those years, for the Lord gave him rest. And their armed forces were well maintained. Verse 8 talks about how their army had 300,000 men from Judah equipped with large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin armed with small shields and bows and all these were brave fighting men. So this made Judah one of the, a major military power in that region which meant that the neighbors were getting restless. And that's when a local bully decided to assert himself. Verse 9 says, Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with a vast army and 300 chariots and came as far as Mershah. But Asa was not intimidated. 
It says in verse 10, Asa went out to meet him and they took up battle positions. Verse 11, then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. That's an interesting prayer and uh, it almost seems somewhat unnecessary. Help the powerless? We're not powerless. We have 580,000 soldiers. We don't even have to pray. We got this. We can, we can give God the day off. This was an amazing prayer. Lord, there is no one like you. Help us, O Lord, for we rely on you. To Esau, the army was not enough. They still needed God. That's called humility. It's a rare commodity on the battlefield. And rare in almost any endeavor, especially these days. Because in our culture, humility is not what's trending now. The big deal right now is having a positive self-image. And that is important. But like most good ideas in a fallen world, it goes viral. And it becomes overemphasized. It's become the orthodox creed of this millennium. We can do anything. All the answers are already within us. Everything we need is inside. <clears throat> Faster, better, stronger. So the question is, can we really do anything, everything? Well, let's get a second opinion. What did Jesus say? In John 15, 5, Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Humility is the habit of reminding ourselves that we are not self-sufficient. Only God is sufficient. And that everything we need is actually outside of us. It's beyond our reach. It only becomes internalized when we open our hearts to Jesus and give him control of our lives. We saw that King Uzziah had a problem with humility and that Manasseh learned humility the hard way. For King Asa, humility was his operating system. Lord, there is none like you. Help us, O Lord, for we rely on you. And God answered that prayer with a decisive victory in verses 12 and 13. So now, after this, it was back to the abundant life in the land of milk and honey. And 25 more years of peace and prosperity followed that victory until chapter 15, verse 19 says, there was no more war until the 35th year of Esau's reign. That's when another military threat appeared on the horizon, chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of Esau's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Esau, the king of Judah. You see, you've got the southern kingdom, which Esau ruled over, consisting of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Then you've got the northern kingdom, which consisted of ten tribes, ruled over by Basha. The problem for Basha was that, is that, that Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. The temple was there, so everybody wanted to leave to go to the temple to worship, and he didn't want that. So he asked the Mexicans and, and thought of constructing a wall. 
They wanted to keep people from leaving the country. And obviously, this was an act of provocation. It was an aggression. So we've got another bully and another battle coming up. War was inevitable. And so Asa once again called on the Lord his God and said, Help us, O Lord, for we rely on you. Well, not exactly. That's what happened last time, 25 years ago. That's what should have happened this time, but it didn't. Instead of sticking to the game plan, Asa came up with a brilliant tactical strategy. Verse 2 says, Then Asa took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. So he takes treasures out of the palace and the temple and sends it to Syria. Ben-Hadad had a treaty with Basha. But Asa came up with a brilliant plan. He was going to interfere with that. He said, let there be a treaty between me and you as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha of Israel so he will withdraw from me. Can you believe that? He took treasuries out of the temple and his own palace to bribe a king to break a treaty so that he would be safe. Somehow, in his calculations of this new threat, Esau decided that God was not enough. In this crisis, God's omnipotence fell short of the minimum requirements. This time, he would need to do some shrewd political maneuvering. For some reason, the God who had given him victory in the past was not sufficient to help him in the presence. So this new plan required robbing the temple treasuries and together with the crown jewels, bribing this king of Syria to double-cross his ally, to break his treaty and join forces with Judah to stop him. Now, I'd like to tell you that the plan backfired that Asa was humiliated and humbled and learned the error of his ways. I would love to tell you that, but I can't. Because the plan worked. Of course it did. Because money solves everything, right? So let's close in prayer. <laughs> Verse 4 says, Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. And when Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. The plan succeeded. Urban Lutzer writes, that's the greatest deception of compromise. It works. So pray that God will not let your sins prosper. The problem is that self-reliance works. Self-sufficiency gets results. So who needs God? We've got this. Oh, pray that God will not let your sins prosper. So Asa's plan works, worked, which means we now return to our regularly scheduled program, another extended period of peace and prosperity. The kingdom is safe, who cares if it was because of God or Ben-Hadad? Well, the problem was that Esau's treaty with Syria violated his treaty with God. 
And in his calculations, King Asa had not included the cost of disobedience or the wages of sin, and that only became apparent when an auditor appeared in the king's court. Verse 7, At that time Hanani, a seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range through the, throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing. You really can't profit by making a deal with the devil. Esau, you've stirred up a hornet's nest. And the years of peace and prosperity are over. From now on, you will be at war. With sin, there are always consequences. And sometimes they're immediate. Of course, here was a perfect opportunity for Asa. This was an opportunity to repent, like Manasseh did. And this would have been the ideal time. Here was an opportunity for Asa to humble himself. God, you're right and I'm wrong. Verse 10 says, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. So he, he was so enraged that he put him in prison. Instead of humbling himself, Asa put up his deflector shields and started firing back. You know, those are the, really the only two options we have when we're confronted with our own sin. Either we'll admit it and humble ourselves, or we will get angry. Verse 10 also says, At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. He was out of control. And that's part of the price of sin. Ron Hutchcraft says, Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, and cost you more than you were prepared to pay. Now God didn't give up on Asa. He gave him another opportunity to repent and reconcile. Verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Now I'd like to tell you that Asa turned back to God and prayed for healing. I'd like to tell you that but I can't. It says, though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. So what happened here? What happened to Asa? Well, somewhere in those 25 years of prosperity, his concept of God changed. Maybe as his own self-image increased, God's sufficiency decreased. Asa began to think he was really something, and that the future of Israel depended on his political genius, the art of the deal. He was turning into Trump. I'll make Ben-Hadad an offer he can't refuse. You don't need God's help when you happen to be a military mastermind. And once you invest that heavily in your reputation, pride won't let you liquidate your stock. 
Repenting would be like declaring bankruptcy, and that's out of the question. So Esau doubled down on his stubborn pride. In fact, he terminated all diplomatic relations with God and died determined never to ask God for anything ever again. That's what happens when we have a faulty concept of God. We may just be off a little, but over the years, it'll go further and further in the wrong direction until we don't even know how to reconnect with him at all. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated event. We see the same thing happen in our generation. In my life, I have felt that my concept of God and his sufficiency has been threatened primarily from three different directions. And maybe these are things you can identify with. My idea of God's sufficiency has been severely threatened, first of all, from science. Not long ago, evangelicals had a strong sense of God's sufficiency in creation. We saw his eternal power and divine nature clearly displayed across the universe. And it was awesome. But then a bully showed up called evolution to challenge the creator. And for a lot of Christians, our faith began to flicker. Now, there are aspects of evolution that are definitely scientific. Natural selection, survival of the fittest. And we can see evolution clearly occurring within species. But you see, they didn't stop there. Atheists realized that the theory of evolution gave them their best opportunity to finally make God irrelevant. And so they went on to claim that evolution caused everything from the very beginning to today, including human life, and were essentially apes with an upgrade. And so I, hearing this over and over and over again, began to question God's self-sufficiency in this area. And over time, evolution has amassed an impressive resume of references from masterminds like Charles Darwin and Stephen Hawking and David Attenborough and Christopher Hitchens and Carl Sagan and even young Sheldon. These are the masterminds of atheistic evolution. And so the theory of evolution has been empowered by its own popularity so that it became aggressive and predatory and it's become the survival of the fittest and creation is kind of an endangered species on the verge of extinction. God doesn't seem that all-sufficient anymore. Many evangelical believers have been intimidated. They've begun to retreat, were kind of embarrassed. And as evolution has increased, the creator has decreased. Until secular science is now supreme, sufficient to explain everything. Because science has all the facts and all the fossils. Religion only has faith. Religion, they're a bunch of superstitious bottom feeders who used to believe the earth was flat. So when people hear the word science, 
They simply assume it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because science is only interested in the truth. Well, I need to tell you that doesn't necessarily apply to evolution. Atheistic evolution is contaminated with unproven speculation, with imagination, with assumptions. So don't swallow it. It's contaminated. Someone once said, the probability of this universe having been the result of chance is equal to the probability of the Encyclopedia Britannica having resulted from an explosion in a print shop. Some of you understand what that means, some of you don't. We don't print things like that anymore. So let me, I, I thought of what's an, another version of that that can communicate to us. We have replaced print shops with computers. So let's think of that. The probability of the universe having been the result of random chance and accident is equal to what? Well, computer industries rely on silicon. That's essential. That's why they call it Silicon Valley. So the probability of the universe having been the result of chance and random accident is equal to the probability, now silicon is in sand, is equal to the probability that Silicon Valley and Apple computers was the result of a billion sandstorms blowing across this planet for a billion years, that somehow after all that time, this amazing thing that we have today came together. So you should not have bought your iPhone. All you should have done is gone into the desert and just kind of waited as the sand mixed, was mixed around, and it's very possible eventually you would have gotten an iPhone. Totally free. Just, just a matter of patience. You should have waited. You see, when you're involving billions and billions of years, anything can possibly happen. Well, when it comes to this, um, we, we see intelligent design. We see it everywhere. Every square inch of Apple headquarters has been intelligently designed. It doesn't come from the sandstorms. This universe, our human brain, is far more complex and wonderful than that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Everything we see shows intelligent design. And so some believers have come up with a compromise. Uh, we settled for something called theistic evolution, where God used evolution to create life, because that keeps us in the game, and he was the one re ultimately responsible. Unfortunately, that theory creates even more problems than it solves. Last week at the conference, uh, Faith Beyond Belief, Dr. Fazrana pointed out that if you argue that God used evolution to create life, it changes the opening chapters of Genesis. You have to eliminate Adam and Eve as historical figures. They become metaphorical or mythological. Well, if you do that, it creates a domino effect because that undermines biblical inerrancy. It raises questions about the image of God, the fall, original sin, God's design for marriage, etc. 
And it certainly destroys Paul's credibility because Paul referred to Adam and Eve as real people whose actions had enormous consequences. The cost of theistic evolution is far too high. And it's unnecessary. Because if God's word is the truth, which we claim it is, we don't have to compromise or conform with any speculation of evolution. In fact, the Bible is making a comeback. One uh, scientist said this, those who dip into the surface of physics become atheists. But as you move into the depths, you find God waiting for you. On the newest Alpha video, there's a testimony of one of the most respected scientists of our time, Francis Collins, who was the director of the Genome Project, which mapped the three billion letters of human DNA. And he's that project was considered the most important scientific undertaking of our time. And Collins was an atheist until one of his patients had a very, very bad episode of heart disease. And the doctors couldn't help her. But she coped because of her faith. And as she told him that, she asked, what do you believe, doctor? And that's when he realized he'd never actually examined the evidence for the existence of God. He just made the typical assumptions of evolution. But because science arrives at conclusions based on evidence, he decided he, he had to take a closer look. And he found pointers to the Creator. The fact that the universe had a beginning, and that it was fine-tuned, in that the behavior of matter and energy were set at a very precise range to make life possible. It was all finely tuned, to make life possible, and that it could all be measured mathematically. Collins started reading books by Oxford scholars like C.S. Lewis, and it says eventually, he said, this brought him to the person of Jesus Christ, and he is a believer. One of the most renowned scientists of our age. So the question that started him on a journey that he thought would strengthen his atheism resulted in his conversion. So if God's word is sufficient, we don't have to recalibrate it to become consistent with some theory like evolution. I think evolution has to evolve to prove that it measures up to the truth of God's word. Because the Bible is absolute truth and truth never changes. Evolution is truth mixed with error. So it has to change. And scientists are always changing their minds. We don't need to doubt God's sufficiency in the creation of the universe or in any scientific sense. Whenever we doubt God's sufficiency, we will face defeat. We need to double down on our beliefs in the Creator and say that we are not ashamed. A second area where we see God's sufficiency as being challenged is social re-engineering of society. Remember when the Creator used to be sufficient? Well, there's other bullies that have showed up and shamed us 
telling us that we're intolerant, we're narrow-minded, we're un-Canadian if we believe the Bible. They hope that we'll abandon our superstitions and conform to their ideas of a utopian, progressive society. And we've been tempted to do that. We've been tempted to be ashamed about what we believe about marriage and gender and religion and abortion. But this is also unnecessary because God and his word is sufficient to enable us to stand and face the challenges coming from the masterminds of political correctness. In Psalm 2, when uh, the mighty intellects conspired to overthrow the Lord and his anointed, anointed one, it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughed. The Lord scoffed at them, and he rebuked them in his anger and terrified them in his wrath. That's not our business. We're not going to get into a fight here. God is the one who vindicates his name. You know what I like about evolution? What I like about evolution is that we can disagree and still get along with each other, you know? It's not like we have to believe one thing or the other. We, we can still disagree. But when it comes to uh, what's happening in our society, we're told there aren't two opinions, there's only one opinion, you have to conform. Well, God is the one who will answer those questions. We do not have to be ashamed of what the Bible teaches. It's not political correctness that we're concerned about. God is sufficient. The third area where these challenges come from are more personal. It's when we face suffering. When John the Baptist was on death row in Matthew 11, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we look for someone else? He was questioning the sufficiency of Jesus Christ because that's what happens when we face a severe crisis or a chronic illness or a family conflict. A deep disappointment can make us question God's sufficiency. Yes, we believed that he was able to help us last time, but this time we're not so sure. And faith capitalizes on our uncertainty. And instead of peace, we have ongoing conflict in our lives, just like King Asa. And the truth is that every challenge to God's sufficiency whether it comes from science or social engineering or suffering, is an opportunity for us, an opportunity to humble ourselves and to decrease so that he may increase. Is God sufficient for all that life throws at us? Psalm 59 verse, or Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Surely the Lord's arm the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. His arm is not too short to save. Oh no, that's it. There's no hope. God can't reach us. His arm is too short. Well, that's absurd. God is sufficient. Or to put it another way, He is able. And that affirmation is repeated throughout Scripture. 2 Timothy 1.12, this is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. 
In Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Jude chapter 1, 24, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. God is able. He is totally sufficient. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. And in Revelation 5.5, in the end times, Jesus is the one who is able to break the seals and to open the scroll. Nobody else can do that. So what ultimately matters for us is not our self-esteem. What's far more important is our God-esteem. Every crisis we face, everything we experience, every challenge is an opportunity to affirm the sufficiency of God. We don't have to argue. God will deal with that. We just have to make sure that we do not surrender our faith in his sufficiency. God is able, which means he is more than enough. So we don't concern ourselves with the masterminds of our culture. We are only concerned with our master. Father, we thank you so much that your arm is not too short to save. Thank you that you can reach to us no matter what our situation is. Lord, we thank you that you are the one who ultimately pulls us from the darkness of sin and brings us into the kingdom of light. We thank you that you are the one who uh, can do that, the only one who can do that. And we want to reach up and take your arm, your hand, and follow you. Because we trust that you are more than enough. We give you the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.